0: The COVID 19 pandemic has upended our world, putting hospitals and healthcare workers on the front lines of a constantly evolving crisis whose impact will extend well into the future. Welcome to Advancing Health, a podcast brought to you by the American Hospital Association. I'm Tom Hederley, Executive Speechwriter for AHA. Exacerbated by the COVID 19 pandemic, healthcare organizations are facing many challenges related to recruiting, training, retaining, and managing a qualified and engaged workforce. What are the latest forces and trends affecting healthcare human resources talent management strategies? Today, we hear the perspectives of Elisa Aris pakajaga Vice President of the American Hospital Association's Physician Alliance, and two other prominent AHA leaders. These experts' viewpoints are among those included in the 2021 Healthcare Talent Scan, the AHA's annual snapshot of healthcare talent management trends and strategies. The 2021 Healthcare Talent Scan is sponsored by Certify Screening.
1: Good day, I'm Elisa Adispakwachaga, and I'm pleased to have with me today two of my colleagues, Joy Lewis, AHA's Vice President of Strategic Policy Planning, and Jeremy Sadler, Director of HR Initiatives for the American Society for Healthcare Human Resources Administration. So I'm glad to uh, share with you that the viewpoints of uh, all three of us are included in the 2021 Healthcare Talent Scan, the AHA's annual snapshot of healthcare employment. We're here today to discuss some of those. Jeremy, I'm going to start with you Um, from your perspective, what are some of the top challenges or drivers of change um, in healthcare workforce management? And then as a follow-up, how do you suggest hospitals and health systems really get their arms around that and start to address it?
2: Thank you for giving me an opportunity to answer this question. I think the main change coming to the workforce in healthcare is what we all sort of know is on the horizon, which is the fact that we've got an aging workforce uh, coupled with an aging population. So we've got the need for additional healthcare providers to be infused into the system, despite the fact that we are losing more current healthcare providers than we are gaining. So with an aging nurse population in particular, uh, with 50% of our nurses across the country beyond the age of 50, we really need an influx of new clinicians, particularly new nurses, into uh, into our workforce. The unfortunate reality is what has typically and historically been the expectation for clinicians and healthcare providers is not necessarily what millennials and Gen Z are really looking for. Uh, Healthcare has historically been, um, you know, site-based. It hasn't been the most flexible of career paths. It has, it tends to have restrictive time off policies. And what millennials and Gen Z are really looking for, are flexibility, work-life balance, uh, the opportunity to be gone on weekends and in holidays with their, their family. And much of that is very difficult in, the healthcare environment. Another thing that is is affecting our workforce management is the fact that, that we have seen reductions in reimbursement. And the unfortunate reality is with reductions in reimbursement, organizations have to make decisions on where to spend their workforce dollars and have have fewer and fewer opportunities to grow clinicians from within their ranks as the ancillary and secondary positions within healthcare have slowly moved out of the hospital environment and the healthcare environment uh, you know, due to cost and lack of reimbursement and due to efficiencies. So what has historically been our farm team for our workforce, Meaning those um, those entry level workers that find their niche in healthcare and choose to go back to school and take advantage of tuition reimbursement. Unfortunately, there are fewer and fewer of those folks to then fill the clinical roles that we will need long term.
1: So, Jeremy, given all of those challenges, what are some of the ways that hospitals and health systems can address it?
2: Well, that's a great question. I think the best way to address it is really threefold. Um, first and foremost, you need to become the pervert employer in your marketplace. You do that by ensuring that your clinicians and your caregivers have a voice. You have to make sure that your policies and practices, as a healthcare, you know, as a healthcare provider or as a healthcare system are 21st century workforce policies. And what that means is you have to have flexibility and creativity with with how you staff and how you hold folks accountable. So becoming that pervert employer is incredibly important. You have to be able to grow your own. So I talked a little bit a moment ago about how it's more difficult when you have fewer and fewer um, ancillary staff to, to grow. But you need to do that through partnership with educational institutions, You have to create and encourage career ladders and you have to make sure that your educational programs and your tuition assistance programs meet the employees needs but also your future workforce needs and don't forget about retention we understand that we've got an aging workforce but having an opportunity to keep some of those folks employed uh, in less physically demanding roles is incredibly important and then making sure that we continue to grow our non-clinical and clinical talent, giving them the ability to lead and have an influence on the direction of the organization is incredibly important and will help you retain employees long-term.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Joy, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about some of the longer-term impacts and and horizons related to workforce. What do you see the long-term impact of COVID-19 being on our, uh, the staffing needs for hospitals and health systems.
3: You know, that's an excellent question, Elisa. I'm I'm happy to weigh in here. Um, I'm sure you've heard the saying, never let a good crisis go to waste, uh, a phrase that was popularized by Raheem Emanuel, former mayor of Chicago and President Obama's first chief of staff although I'm I'm told that that phrase actually may may predate him. But my larger point being that as hospital and health system leaders plan for staffing needs in a post COVID world, there really is an opportunity to design for that future state that incorporates improvements in care delivery by effectively re-envisioning how care should be rendered and how care should be experienced by consumers. And so, at the end of the day, each staff role will need to be assessed for its purpose and relevance moving forward. Because prior to the pandemic, home health aides and nursing assistants and other entry level positions were projected to have the greatest supply gaps through 2025. But now we're in an environment where, you know, For example, we've seen this rapid ramp up in the use of telemedicine and advocates are now calling on the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, to make permanent many of the telehealth provisions that were relaxed to support virtual care during the pandemic. So if and in fact, this does materialize, I've actually heard some of our hospital and health system leaders say that by leveraging technology that will result in a reduced need for some frontline low wage workers, such as call center workers, schedulers, and and nursing assistants who would typically room patients. So if instead we're anticipating a pivot to an increased use of online platforms for scheduling appointments, for example, or a a digital triage method for office visits, we may very well end up in a place where healthcare in all settings may learn to manage with less staff, as as revenue is reduced and and the use of technology increases. So, some would argue that that's clearly good for driving efficiencies in, in our healthcare system, uh, and others would say it's not so good for workers. Right. So, wanted to, to really hone in on that point. But if I may, one key learning from the pandemic is is really the need for our hospitals and health systems to to better prepare for sudden shifts in population health needs. And I don't mean to suggest that we were caught flat-footed because we weren't. We're always there and our doors are always open and we're ready to serve our communities. But one trend that has emerged as an effective strategy to respond to increased staffing needs in COVID-19 positive units was this idea of cross-training, right? And so looking ahead, I think we will see this become much more routine where some staff will be cross-trained to ensure versatile skill sets, which frankly during the COVID nineteen surge, it was perceived as a good thing by many staff members who who welcomed the opportunity to learn something new. So I, I just say that the field has been innovative in adapting to the urgency of of the situation, and I anticipate that we will continue to innovate well into the future.
1: Thanks for bringing that up, Joy. And I think um, one of the things that we also saw is some of those teams were being built, and I don't know that people anticipated this as much as it happened, but the. Um, insulating effects of those teams in that community on resilience and well being helping to support those groups. So I think it's um, those are two lessons that we've really um, learned. Jeremy, I want to pick up on the the telemedicine um, piece specifically um, and looking more at some of the the day to day ramifications today for the clinical workforce and for different service areas such as behavioral health, addressing um, substance use disorder how do you see telemedicine weaving into some of these activities and what will that mean for that workforce
2: well thank you for for that there's definitely an opportunity for uh for the industry to pivot and we've seen other industries have to pivot related to covid um whether it's you know restaurants that need to deliver or curbside pickup at stores um, and, you know, and the fact that a number of people are working from home and doing meetings by Zoom. So everybody in, in the entire world right now is pivoting a little bit. So we can certainly expect that healthcare is going to have to pivot as well. I think the greatest impact on telemedicine will be in, in the rural and, and underserved populations. Um, it is often difficult to find specialists and subspecialists and behavioral health professionals um, that are are willing and interested and frankly have um, a large enough population to sustain their practices when you move into a rural area or you move into an area that doesn't necessarily, um, is, is historically underserved and may not have the volume of patients in a particular geographic location to justify, uh, you know, justify a permanent home, if if you would. So I think ultimately you will see and we are already seeing the fact that telemedicine is changing the game. I think it's something that, that the industry has um, has hoped for, meaning that, that, that CMS would take some of the regulation out of, um, out of telemedicine and give us a better opportunity to serve populations that have historically been underserved. I think it will be really good for patients and providers, uh, particularly in the mental health space. I think there's a lot of opportunity to um, to have interventions prior to crisis. If telemedicine were available, it will reduce ED visits for those mental health visits that uh, that are you know missed or folks that have and feel a stigma related to to a mental health crisis or a mental health um, illness and then mistreatment or choose not to have treatment, the ability to do that in a telemedicine location or you know in the future doing it from home through a telemedicine visit may uh, you know may help us with the fact that people are being treated prior to crisis. I think there are a number of workforce implications as well. And, and some of those are positive and some of those are negative. I think initially organizations are going to have to understand that there's a cost to the technology. And, you know, there may be some front end cost that needs to be picked up by healthcare providers to make sure that they are able to treat in this way. I think a lot of healthcare providers were already doing that. They were already making those investments with the hope that um, that telemedicine would take off, and that some of the restrictions in, in getting paid would be removed. And I think, um, you know, if there's a blessing to COVID-19, I think some of those restrictions being removed has, you know, maybe one of those blessings. Um, I think there are opportunities for new technical roles that that will create brand new positions in the healthcare industry that we haven't thought of yet. And that we may not think of, you know, even for a couple of years to come, but there will be new roles in healthcare that are specific to telemedicine that, um, that will change the way, we, the way we treat patients and what we do uh, on a daily basis. I think there will be greater efficiency in the healthcare system. And I think ultimately that the move to telemedicine will change everybody's life in some way. And if you really think about the way healthcare has changed in the last decade or two, there has been a huge shift from inpatient to outpatient treatment. And what we're now seeing is a shift from outpatient treatment to telemedicine. And the way that that ultimately affects our clinicians is when you move from, from more care being done inpatient to more care being done outpatient, the acuity of that inpatient level, that inpatient goes up. And I likely suspect that what we will see as we move from outpatient to telemedicine is that in some ways, the acuity of the outpatient will go up and what is the routine uh, routine visit will become um, will become a telemedicine visit and the more significant outpatient visit will be um, will be the norm, it'll it'll have a higher acuity. I think the whole world of care is shifting and it's shifting and it has shifted in years past from inpatient to outpatient and now it's shifting from outpatient to telemedicine. And as we shifted from inpatient to outpatient, what we saw was higher acuity on the inpatient because much of what was being done inpatient based in the past was being done outpatient based now. And I think we will see the same shift in acuity from outpatient to telemedicine. What is the routine outpatient visit now? Some of those will become telemedicine visits, leaving only the more acute, more significant outpatient visit being done in person.
1: I agree, Jeremy, I think there's going to be a significant shift. joy as um, we think about some of these new jobs that jeremy mentioned um, and the greater use of ai of data analytics in in shaping how we deliver care combined with the uh, opportunity if you can call it that that COVID has given us to question our assumptions about care delivery what do you see as some of the skills or positions that might be in high demand say in five years out ten years out
3: so I have to break it to you Elisa, the The future is human and machines as co-workers and I am not a futurist, but I, I think this is becoming more and more apparent to, to many of us. Artificial intelligence is a profound way to augment clinical workflows and reduce the reliance on, on us humans for, for routine, mundane, basic tasks, right? and so ai really has the potential to free up our providers for higher order thinking and the ability to to make real time assessments to guide providers in their clinical decision making and so in my mind there will be a whole new cadre of workers to help build and implement the data analytical frameworks and to produce those skill sets that that Specialize in things like computer science and statistics and engineering. I think all of these will, will be front and center. In fact, recently I, I read an article that called out several examples of position titles uh, that will emerge. And so I'll share some of them with our listeners, some of the more interesting ones. Um, so there is a, a, a title called Research Engineer. There's an algorithm engineer, machine learning engineer, data scientist, data architect. And this one I thought was really interesting, uh, measure experts. And a measure expert is someone who structures data in a way that aligns with quality and patient safety indicators. And so, You know i think we can all agree that care will be experienced and rendered in new ways and i i hinted at this earlier when i talked about this desired future state right one in which the healthcare workforce delivers human-centered care digitally enabled or or what some refer to as connected care uh team-based care i think all of these approaches will accelerate across all healthcare settings and so As we've seen technology unleashed in the past six months, and as we begin to make greater use of artificial intelligence and data analytics to inform and shape treatment decisions, new skills will be in high demand. And I I have no doubt that we will continue to deliver location agnostic care and leverage AI
1: and other technologies to augment care. Well, the future sounds uh, bright indeed. (laughs) Thanks for that joy. Um, So I'm going to ask this first to Jeremy and then and then toss it to Joy. Just really quickly as we wrap up. um, We've seen as a result of COVID a number of hospitals and health systems that have been um, needing to have furloughs and layoffs in in response to the reduction in um, non-emergent care as as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Starting with you, Jeremy, what do you see as some of the shorter term ramifications for the clinical workforce and then joy for the long term ramifications and all of this sort of wrapped up a little bit in the fact that um, there may be concerns as we know folks delayed care um, going into the pandemic. There may be safety concerns about returning to the facilities and when those numbers of. non-emergent, if you will, procedures come back. So um, again, Jeremy, from the short term, what do you see as the ramifications for the clinical workforce? And then we'll go to Joy.
2: Thank you. What I see for our clinicians in the short term is is a significantly increased stress level. And I read a study recently that said in the first couple of months of the pandemic, so March, April, um stress levels stayed relatively low and as we you know were inundated with with the sensationalism in the media and as we were inundated with the fears of of what was going on in this country stress levels amongst our clinicians rose and continued to rise and the unfortunate reality is what happened as we Felt like we were coming out of the initial phase of of the COVID nineteen pandemic was that organizations had to look at their finances and the fact that most of them lost significant income with the reduction of elective procedures. They those organizations had to look at their finances and had to make tough decisions on. Um, you know, on returning folks to work and on laying off lower level, less essential employees. And the unfortunate reality is what that does is it simply puts more pressure on our clinicians and puts more stress on our clinicians. And as we've seen, what we thought was us coming out of the pandemic has has not really been us coming out. It was just a lull before what could be an, another potential significant storm. Yeah. So I think the stress levels are on our clinicians are probably the most significant concern as a result of the pandemic. The other thing that I I have to I have to mention is there used to be and historically has always been um, a cachet with working in healthcare. There was um there was pride in healthcare. People understood and felt like having a career in healthcare was stable, and it was going to be long term. And there was little that would affect uh, their ability to to practice their career. And I think what what COVID-19 has exposed is that no industry is is exempt from um, from negative from a negative impact. And you know, the fact that we've seen folks furloughed and layoffs and cost reduction, uh, I think really has, will have a long-term impact on, on the industry from the perspective of, it was an industry that most folks felt like if I choose healthcare as a career, I'm going to be sort of exempt from the market swings and what the economy is doing. And I think this really has, has, Sort of put a put a kink in that armor, and and people recognize that healthcare is also impacted by the the larger economy, and healthcare institutions are making the same tough decisions as other businesses when it comes to um, the ability to weather a financial storm.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Joy. Well, as as Jeremy
3: highlighted you know, the pandemic has triggered quite a range of workforce challenges. And we know that for many in non-clinician roles who are furloughed, they are moving on to other opportunities. And there is growing recognition that the recovery period for hospitals and health systems will be a protracted one. And so along those lines, one of the considerations in front of us is whether we will see the potential downsizing or elimination of various departments to decrease expenses. At at some point, consumers will decide to address their unmet healthcare needs. We're already beginning to observe that. The question for me is whether they will access care in a primary care setting, where I think there's a strong likelihood that we will see long-term reduction in access because many freestanding primary care docs will simply not be able to recover from having shuttered during the pandemic? Or will we see the care occurring in more acute care settings like urgent care centers and emergency departments? So that's an outstanding question in my mind. We can also consider this along the dimensions of reallocation of staff, right? We, we spoke earlier that staff, who traditionally worked in an ambulatory setting may have been cross-trained to work in the acute care setting. So there's that uh, consideration. In addition, social distancing requirements that we've now come to accept will will likely change the way clinical workflows are designed and, and may in fact have the, the effect of decreasing the number of, of clinical staff in, in some departments. And so I think we just can't lose sight of all of these moving parts. Hospital administrators will need to consider alternative staffing strategies, such as a contingent workforce and maybe restructuring volume-based physician and advanced practice provider contracts in order to better align with patient demand and to the point that Jeremy made around maintaining the organization's financial viability. But I wanna pile on to Jeremy's point about stress levels because I think we would be remiss if we didn't touch a little bit more on workforce resiliency. Because we want to encourage more care to be given to assist frontline workers to essentially process the grief and the moral distress and, and the magnitude of the loss that many of them saw and continue to see on a daily basis. And so leadership should be really creative in the ways that they set out to promote the well-being and the resiliency of their clinical frontline workers because we know that the emotional fallout from this pandemic will linger. And so we we are looking to our leaders to be attentive and to to really practice leading with, with empathy. One of the uh, AHA's board members has has warned us, and and maybe that may be putting it in strong terms, but he he has shared with us that the crisis that will emerge from the remnants of COVID-19 will be a behavioral health one. And so it really our hospital and health system leaders to remain vigilant around this particular issue of workforce resiliency.
1: And so I just wanted to make that additional point. Absolutely. Thank you both. I couldn't underscore the resilience uh, issue any more than you already have. You have. It is very much a challenge um, that we were facing before and has only been amplified by this crisis. Um, So thank you for joining us and I look forward to further chats um, with my colleagues.